Well, right in the middle of a series on the book of Genesis, looking at the first 11 chapters. And today we're in chapter 2, and we're going to be discussing a topic that is controversial. Uh, a topic that many people uh, react so negatively to when they hear the Bible's teaching on this certain topic of how husband and wife are to relate to one another in a marriage. What was God's original design for marriage and more specifically for a husband and wife? So often these debates turn into arguments where there's lots of friction and not much hearing going on back and forth from both sides. I would encourage you this morning as we look at the text is to Process what you're hearing, not with your feelings, but with what you see in the text of Scripture. I want you to ask yourself, is what he is saying, is that what the Bible says? Okay, because don't shoot me, I'm just the messenger. Okay, I'm just the mailman. It's the same thing if you you see someone on TV and you decide to break your television set, that does no good. All right, and so getting angry at the preacher is not going, I want you to ask, is this what the Bible says? And if you see this morning that this is what the Bible says, and I still don't like it, then I would pray that God would work on your heart. Because there are things, I I must confess, in my life, I've read the scripture and said, I don't like that. I, I, I don't like that at all. That doesn't, that doesn't resonate with my feelings, my spirit, my intellect, one way or the other. And at that point, I need to ask God to change my mind because the problem we come to scripture and don't like what it says is not the scripture it's us it's us that need to conform our mind to the word of god and we need to ask god to do that because these are his words that he has given to us that we might know him and know about ourselves and about this whole world okay so what i want to show you today i'm going to tell you right up front from this creation account, I want to show you that God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, and that he designed marriage to be such that the husband is the head of that household, the leader of that household, responsible, accountable to, to lead, to provide and protect, and the wife is to come alongside him as a helper. Okay? That does not mean that I am going to preach to you that somehow men are better than women okay both men and women are created in the image of god have equality in terms of personhood in terms of their dignity and value and worth because they're made in god's image but rather this is having to do with marriage and the role of husband and wife within the marriage okay i want to show you that from the text of scripture here this morning and talk about certainly implications and applications of that So far, we're here in chapter two. We've been looking at God's creation on the sixth day as we get more detail. And he created Adam already and he planted a garden and put Adam in the garden. And as yet, there has not been the creation of the woman, not been the creation of Eve yet. And we get that to the point here in verse 18. Look with me in chapter two, verse 18. He says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or a helper suitable for him. In this verse, Genesis 2.18 is right where the controversy begins. How do we define woman as opposed to man? How, how 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 do a man and a woman relate here in this text? I've already reminded you that in Genesis 1, we read that both are made in the image of God. Both are given the call to exercise dominion. Okay, so what does it mean here that the woman is created as a helper fit for the man or as a helper suitable for the man? Okay, now because it's such a hot topic, we're going to have to dive into some details to make sure we understand this right. First, let's look at the word helper. Okay, as we look at the the role of a husband and a wife, it says it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper. What does he mean by helper? Well, the the Hebrew word that translates helper is quite easy to translate. Every single English translation has always translated the word help or helper. And we know what a helper is, someone, someone who helps someone, they assist someone. You have, you have a goal, uh, you, have, you have a mission, I'm going to come alongside you and help you do that. Okay, I'm going to be 
an assistant to you. So we see the woman is to be made here as a helper for her husband. Now we can already conceive of the objections. People say, what? A wife is meant to help her husband? Does that mean that she, she serves him? That she's, her purpose is to serve him and to do what he wants to do? Does that mean that she's subordinate to her husband? That sounds so terrible in our day and age today. But before we go racing the wrong conclusions, remember Genesis one twenty seven. God made both men and women in his image. So they have equality in their persons. Uh, in in the, um, the age of salvation, when Christ has come, uh, Paul argues in Galatians 3.27, there is neither Jew nor Greek or male or female. We are all one in Christ. That is, we all share in the same inheritance of the saints. We're all equal in persons. But that does not mean we don't have distinctions within our roles. Okay? Dignity and value and worth is not based on what you do. Okay, we have to really get that into our minds because we forget that so often. Your dignity, your value, your worth as a human being does not come from what you do. If our roles dictate our value or our dignity and our worth, you would have to say that a CEO of a company is worth more than someone who works in the mailroom of that company. You, you would have to say that the, the, the general of, the, of an army is, is worth more as a person than the soldiers that he commands because they ought to serve him and submit to his orders. But we recognize that whether you're a general or whether you're a soldier up front, you have, you're a person, you're a human being. You have dignity and value and worth before God because you're made in his image. But some might think, well, isn't a CEO more valuable in some way? Isn't a boss worth more than his employee in some way? Aren't those people more indispensable? And this is, again, where we need to renew our minds. Just because someone is in a position of authority does not mean they're indispensable. You know, the graveyard is full of the bones of indispensable people. People who were important. People who were leaders or rulers. And and look how from the dust they came and from the dust they returned. Okay? Second, the idea that our, our value or our worth is predicated upon or comes from our roles or what we do is completely antithetical to Christianity, com- completely counter to the teachings of the Bible. Okay, Because think about this. Is Christ, the eternal Son of God, who came to heaven, who said, I came and I, I did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, he says in Philippians 2, but I humbled myself by taking on the form of a servant. He took on human form as a servant and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Does that mean that he's somehow lower than us as a person? Is he somehow less than God because he put on human flesh and he served us by dying? No. In Isaiah, Christ is called the suffering servant. The servant. And he says that I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give myself a ransom for many. Does that make make him any less God because he came to serve? Does that make him any less of a person because he came to serve? No, that actually shows how exalted and glorious he is because of who he is and the fact that he came and he put himself beneath us to serve us out of love. And so here, a servant like Christ is a glorious position. It doesn't make him any less of a person. It doesn't make him any less dignified. It doesn't remove his deity or his dignity. And so our roles have nothing to do with who we are as as a person. Nothing to do with our dignity, our value, and our worth. So by saying that the wife was made as a helper for her husband doesn't mean that the wife is any less of a person than her husband is. Okay? We need to understand that. The second thing we need to understand, otherwise we go to the wrong conclusions. This verse is not teaching us that women are helpers for men. Generally, this verse is teaching us that a wife is a helper to her husband specifically. Okay, it's not not a matter of if you're a woman, well, you need to listen to what any man says because, hey, they're the ones in charge here. Not at all. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Okay, and it's not just from Genesis 2.18. 
Okay, this is the creation account before sin entered the world. I want to read to you some other passages from the New Testament of the ethic that we are to have as Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's, who's reversed the effects of sin and is now giving us calls to live holy lives. I'm going to read these though. You can jot down the references if you wish. Ephesians 5.22 says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife. Do you hear that? So we see the language of helping, of submission. But it says submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Not submit to the men. Submit to your own husbands. Colossians 3.18 says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1 says this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Every time a wife is called to be in submission, it's always to their own husband, not to men in general. Okay? Wives are to be helper for their husbands. Okay? So from these verses, Genesis 2.18, it's clear that wives are not called to submit to men in general, but to their husbands. Husbands in particular. And the husband is clearly called in scripture to be the head of his wife, to be the head of his family, to lovingly lead as his wife lovingly supports him and helps him in that role. Okay? Now, there's other misconceptions. For instance, does that mean I need to listen to my husband if he's a cruel dictator? What if he's an abusive person? Do I just need to lay down and take it? Listen to those verses again. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In Ephesians 5.22. Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay? You're You're to submit your own husbands as to the Lord. You're not called to obey your husband if that means that you're going to disobey the Lord. Okay? God... And his authority is preeminent in all of our lives. No matter if you're male or female or child or elderly, it doesn't matter. You must take your marching orders from the Lord preeminently. It says to obey your husband in the Lord. You know, don't, don't disobey God and say, well, I was just doing what my husband was telling me. My husband told me I, I need to do this. I know it's disobeying God, but I, I need to submit to him. It's not what the scriptures are saying. A wife submits to her husband as to the Lord. It doesn't say as to a dictator. And consider when it says a wives are to submit to their husband as to the Lord. It's not just to submit your husband in the Lord as in as your husband is leading you faithfully. You know, if he's telling you to disobey, you disobey the Lord. You, you can't follow that instruction that he's given to you. It's not only referring to that, but it's also referring to submit to your husband as is as to the Lord, as is fitting to the Lord, because your husband is to act towards you as a wife, as the Lord does to his church, with with a loving, a cherishing attitude, not as an abusive dictator. And so if men get this pass and say, Well, my wife needs to submit to me, hmm, I'm gonna gonna go home and I got some ammunition this afternoon, this evening from my wife. We're gonna get things sorted out here. Not at all. You ought to love your wife as Christ does the church, as the Lord does his people. You are to be like Christ in your home in terms of your loving, tender leadership. And how did Christ lead his disciples? He washed their feet. He served them. And they're like, you you, you can't do that, Lord. We ought to be doing this to you. He's like, no, whoever's going to be the greatest among you is going to be your servant. Okay, and so how are husbands to lead in their households as a servant leader, cherishing their wife, putting the needs of their wife and their family above themselves? That's how husbands are called to lead, not as an abusive dictator, as an authoritarian, but the same way that Christ leads through self-sacrifice. Now, we might be thinking, the, the women might be thinking, it sounds like it's much better to be a husband than it is to be a wife. I wish I could be a leader rather than a, someone who's a helper. But just remember that our roles together as husband and wife and as male and female are not meant to be a battle of the sexes, not meant to be a struggle for power. 
It's meant to be a picture of Christ and the church, of a, a mutual love for one another in leadership and in submission, working together in harmony. The husband is called to cherish his wife. He's called to put her and his family's needs before his own. He's called to lovingly sacrifice. He's called to shepherd them spiritually, to, to be accountable before God, to sanctify his wife and to sanctify his children, to instruct them in the Lord. He's called to account first before God for his wife and for his children. He's called to protect. He's called to provide. He's called to lead. He's called to be the lead, not just, um, I'm, I'm going to make the decisions about what we're eating tonight, but he's called to lead in being the first to forgive, the first to reconcile, the first to make peace, the first to point the family to Christ, the first to say, let's pray, the first to say, let's turn to the scriptures and seek the will of God, the first to say, I'm going to obey the Lord, I'm going to confess my sin, I'm going to model to you what it looks like to be a Christian in the home. The husband is to be first to do those things. This should humble us as men. If there's any men who leave here this afternoon and think, I'm, I'm glad I'm in control, you've completely missed what I just said. You've completely missed the great weight of responsibility it is when you are leading, not just yourself, but you're leading a family to serve God, to be put under God's will and His submission, and to take your marching orders from Him and to lead your family to do likewise. The responsibility is great. And in all this, his wife has to come alongside him as a compliment. Because men, we know we can't do this alone. That job description, that's too, that's too big for us. And so our wives are given as a companion, a suitable helper, a lifelong partner of love to self-sacrifice for one another as we live under the will of God. Okay? So we see here that it's not good that the man should be alone. So God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. He needs help. And so the wife is to be a helper for her husband. The next word that is in verse 18, if you look back in Genesis 2.18. God says, I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him, you might have. Or if you have the authorized version, King James Version, that a help meet for him. So what does it mean, fit for him, suitable for him? This is actually translating one word in the Hebrew. Okay? Uh, we translate it suitable for him or fit for him. Now, before we dive into this word, because this word has been uh, debated in the literature, and there's, there's two basic positions on how to treat the scriptures and how we deal with the roles between men and women. Okay, one, as, as I've been teaching here this morning, what we, we call complementarianism. That men and women are equal in dignity and value and worth. We're equal in personhood. We're equal in status before God. And yet we have differences in our relationships as husband and wife that are complementary to one another. We have different roles that serve one another. We have different roles in the church where biblically qualified men are called to lead in the church. Okay, and so this is called complementarian. Men and women complement one another. The other view is called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism says, well, men are equal in standing before God, and they're also equal in terms of their responsibilities and duties before God. So in a marriage relationship, neither father nor mother has responsibility to lead. In fact, they both ought to be leading together. They both ought to be uh, handling all the discipline, the instruction. They both bear equal responsibility and accountability before God. There's not one leader over the other in a marriage relationship. Same in the church. Uh, we see churches today that have women who are pastors and as preachers because they believe that the scriptures teach egalitarianism, that there is no distinction between men and women when it comes to certain roles or offices, either in the home or in the church. When we look at this phrase here, fit for him, I want to share with you... Um, their understanding, an egalitarian understanding of this particular passage from their literature. I can't say I'm speaking for all of them, um, but from what is published in books. And then I'm going to share with you uh, why I don't think that's the case. Okay, so let's put our thinking hats on. So this word here translated fit for him or suitable for him, uh, they write has been misunderstood. 
Uh, this Hebrew word, and they'll, they'll go back to the Hebrew and say the Hebrew word is kenegedo, okay? Uh, so this root word is neged. And so kenegedo refers to, if you translate it literally, it means as in front of him or as before him. And so they say, well, it refers to someone in a position of superiority or, or at least equality. And if you take that root word of the Hebrew, neged, and you compare it to the noun negid, okay? The ne- noun negid means king or ruler or authority. And so what they say is, well, the word kenegedo really implies that Eve is created as an authority comparable to Adam. That is two equal authorities, two equal rulers, two equal kings. And so they offered a better translation of this verse. And I want to read to you from the from the International Standard Version. This is a, this is a version of the Bible that you can't get in printed form, um, but but people have translated the Bible. It's available online. I want to read to you from this version, which is an egalitarian version of the Bible. What they tra- how they translate this phrase in Genesis two eighteen. It says in that version, "I will make the woman to be an authority corresponding to him." That is, I'm going to make the woman his equal, his equal authority, his equal ruler, as partners together in authority. And so this is how it is argued. And so often, whenever someone goes to the Hebrew, we're like, well, I guess so. I don't know Hebrew. Uh, sounds, sounds pretty convincing. And so many people are swayed uh, by certain scholars who, who point back to the original language. Now, I want to show you why this word has never been understood that way in the thousands of years that it's been understood and translated, okay? And why this is a novel interpretation and why, when you just think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, okay? The word kenegedo there in Hebrew does mean as before him or as in front of him, literally translated that way, but not as in someone who's in front of you as they're leading the way in front of you or an authority, but someone who is face-to-face with you. As before you, in front of you, it has to do with someone who is suitable, comparable, fit, someone who is meet. That's why we have those translations. Okay? And to say that if you take the root word neged of that Hebrew and compare it to negid, uh, those words sound the same, but they're not the same. Okay? It's, it's like taking this for instance. If, if, if that word literally means as in front of him, and I was to tell you that, well, the word front also appears in the word frontier, the noun frontier. And so this as in front of him really refers to being together in very sparse living conditions, you know, out in the frontier. You would recognize right away that that is a logical fallacy because front and frontier are completely different words. You can't just take the meaning of frontier and plug it into the word front. But because it is done in Hebrew and we don't know Hebrew, uh, we don't, we don't, Miss, we miss that sleight of hand where they say the word nagid and they bring the meaning of nagid and they put it into the place where neged is. It's a different word. Different words. You can't take the meaning of one word and put it into another word. And anytime someone tells you the Bible's been translated this way for thousands of years, but we have a novel interpretation based on the root meaning of the some word, be careful. Be careful. Because we, we miss it because we don't speak Hebrew and Greek. But if someone was to tell you, you know, you guys have been missing out on what butterfly really means. Because if you look at the root words of butter and fly, okay, then you really know what a butterfly means. What? doesn't make any sense. We know what a butterfly is. And and breaking it apart and trying to understand its root words, is this going to lead you astray? Okay, so be careful when someone does this with the original languages and professes to have some insight that... The church has missed for thousands of years. And so every, every credible translation ever published in English language has the woman is created as a helper suitable for him, comparable to him, fit for him, um, even complement for him. Okay, these are all valid translations to say that Eve was made as Adam's helper and yet there's an equality of personhood. She is just right for him. And we're going to see that here in the narrative, okay, as it's as we continue here. Let's keep looking and we see God creating Eve, okay? So we understand what God has said in verse 18. And now, interestingly, 
God does something else in verses 19 and 20. Let's read 19 and 20. Genesis 2, 19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What's going on here? God identifies a need. The man's alone. That's not good. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And then he parades all the animals in front of Adam to name them. You know, they just get a, what, how those relate. But it, was, it appeared that Adam didn't recognize his need. And so as God parades all the animals before Adam, what's Adam's conclusion at the end of verse 20? There's, there's nobody like me. There, there's no one that I can relate to. There's no one that I can speak to. I have no partner. All these animals are here. They, they're together. You know, male, female, male, female. Here they all go. I'll name them all. But there's, there's no one for me. And so now Adam recognizes he has no counterpart. He has no helper suitable for him. And then we continue in the narrative, verses 21 to 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, and the reason why she should be called woman because she's taken out of man, it's just Hebrew word for man is ish, went from woman, isha, they're very similar sounding names. And so they both have a similar sounding name because she was taken out of the man. So what we see here happening, as after all the animals prayed before Adam, he named them all, no helper fit for him. Then God put him to sleep, took out a rib, closed it back up, used that rib to form the woman. And then as God brings Eve before Adam, what does he cry? At last, here's my companion. Here is, here is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is, here is my equal, my counterpart, one who is a person, a human being just like me. Okay, so this verse speaks of an equality of personhood. But yet we still recognize there's male and female, man and woman. There's still differences. And yet we see an equality, a complement. And with the differences of male and female, we understand, well, their bodies fit together. Their personalities are designed for the roles that they are given. And so the woman here is created as a fellow partaker with the man to fulfill God's will for them. Okay? Then the following verses talk about God bringing them together in marriage. Look at me at verse 24 and 25. The scriptures say, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, notice the language that the scriptures use here. Father, mother, man, and his wife. You know, these are languages that language that, that indicate that there are differences in role and in function. A father is not the same as a mother. A husband is not the same as a wife. The scriptures talk about how there's two here and they become one flesh. How their bodies come and they fit together to become one flesh. A man and a man cannot become one flesh. A woman and a woman cannot become one flesh. What he's meaning here in the New Testament, he says, do not know if you give your bodies and you're with a prostitute that you become one flesh with her. Okay, so he's talking here about man and woman coming together in a sexual nature. In this marriage, this one flesh union. So it cannot be interchanged with different genders. And we're going to see here that manhood means something. Womanhood means something. Father means something. Mother means something. We can't just ignore those terms. Although we do live in a very gender-confused age. But here we see is that you cannot interchange 
the male, the female, the husband, and the wife. This is a, a story. Um, this recently, this is a true story. There was a lady who uh, grew up in a home, and she had two mothers. And uh, she she testifies that her mothers loved one another, and that she she grew up in a, in, a, in a wonderful home. And as she grew up, especially into her teen years, she was a very vocal advocate for same sex marriage. And, and, and who would blame her? She, she grew up in that environment. And so she says, I am a living testimony of someone who's grown up in that environment. And so this should be legal and accepted by all. And so a very vocal advocate. Now, she did not share the same sexual orientation as her parents. And so as she grew up, she was married to a man. And as she got married to a man, they had children. And when she saw... Her husband, the children's father, whenever she experienced him relating to her and him relating to the children, suddenly her whole worldview changed. Instead of now being an advocate for same-sex marriage, she is now an advocate for so-called traditional marriage. And she now laments that she didn't have a father growing up because not that she had a terrible experience, but because she sees her husband being a father and she sees her kids having a father and she's so in love with that. She loves the fact that she has a husband and not another wife. And so now she's a vocal advocate of, and not, not a Christian, but just purely practical in seeing the differences between a father as opposed to two different mothers. And I think the whole controversy that's important for us to understand Whenever Christians speak out and advocate for marriage between one man and one woman, it is not because we think homosexuality is icky and gross, or it's just different, or it's just not traditional. It's just, I, I just, I don't like that. And so I, I want to, want to maintain the traditions. That is not why Christians should advocate for marriage between one man and one woman. It is not because we, we hate those that the Bible says are doing things that are sexually immoral. Not at all. It's because we rather love. We love the mar- marriage the way that God has instituted and designed it in creation. We love fathers for being fathers. We love mothers who are mothers. I feel so saddened as our government moves across our country to remove the word mother from any kind of document in government or any kind of form. What, uh, what a way to disparage our mothers by simply calling them a guardian or a parent. No, they're a mother. They have birthed children and they care for their children as a mother. And so that word means something. And so it's because we love motherhood. It's because we love fatherhood. It's because we love when a husband and wife and how God has designed a marriage to work. That's why we stand and advocate for a marriage that is reflected in the scriptures here. Because we see that it is God-given, God-designed, and God designed it not to put limitations upon us, but for our own good. God designed marriage that we would flourish as couples as a society, as a home, God did it this way. Not only are there physical differences between male and female that are obvious to science and to nature, that only a male and female can come together to, to procreate. Uh, not only are those, those anatomical differences so obvious, but even differences down to... Um, Things are, are more psychological, down to the mind. Even, even, even physical strength, as you consider that the physical weakness of a woman is a man's strength. And so together they perfectly complement another because a man's insensitivity or, or lack of compassion is met by a woman's strength in her, her mothering and nurturing attitude. And so they complement one another. And so these important differences between men and women cannot be ignored for example, our young men need to be taught that it is manly to protect women. We need to teach our boys what it looks like to be a man 
and not just a person in general, not just a, not not a, not a woman. There's a difference between a man or a woman. We need to teach our young men to be men, and he teaches them it's manly to protect women, not because women are inferior, but because they deserve it. They're they're honorable, and so we strive to protect them. And I believe that all women, regardless of their ability to defend themselves would want a man to step in front of them in a dangerous situation. To put himself between them and the danger that's ahead. I think everyone, no matter who you are, if there is violence happening in your home and you call the police, the person walking through that door, you want to be a nice, strong man. That's just how we feel when we read the news. And what do the news things, when there's war breaking out, or there's death or disaster, they always tell you how many women and children died. Why? Because there's a difference. Because we are supposed to protect women and children. Men are supposed to give their lives for the sake of women and children to protect them. And we need to tell our young men this is right to do. In fact, knights in medieval time would have to swear an oath. It wasn't very long. It included the call to promote the Christian faith. And it also included the call to honor every woman. No matter of their social standing, class, situation you find them in, you as a knight serve women. Even if someone says something disparaging about a woman, you as a knight need to do something about that. And again, chivalry, this idea of, of the more traditional, that the man drives the date, he pays the bill, he does these kind of things, is not because women can't do those things. Or because they're inferior. Rather, men do this because we want to honor women and elevate them and cherish them as women. And so men need to be men and women ought to be honored. Now, in our society, we can continue to resist the roles that God has designed for men and for women in a marriage, in the church, in our society. But we can't reject them. We can't reject reality that God has created. So, and if we continue to resist God's will and God's intention, then we are not going to see homes or society flourishing as God intends. Now, look, look back at verse 24. When he says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. I wanted to, to mention this word and bring it to our attention this word hold fast to his wife okay the, 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 a, a man leaves the safety of his own family his own father and mother and he now clings to his wife and there is a new union a new home a new relationship that he now leaves and he clings to marriage is not something that is temporary this hold fast is something that is permanent till death do us part as we say. And it's interesting how this idea of holding fast is, is, is putting on the shoulders here of the man. If there's ever problems in a relationship and people come to me and say, Pastor Tim, I, we need some help in our relationship. The first person I'm looking to is the man because he leads in that home, because he leads in that relationship. And I don't care how ungodly you might think your wife is. It is your job to sanctify her. It is your job to lead her. It is your job to point her to Christ. Not to be her savior, but to point her to Lord Jesus Christ. It is your job to hold fast and not to give up on that marriage. And not to, not to throw it away. But to hold fast. And to accept the leadership and the permanence of that relationship. So I've tried to demonstrate from Genesis 2 the God-given roles for men and women in a marriage relationship. I tried to demonstrate how the marriage relationship is between one man and one woman and why that's important for society and why it is what God has said. But lastly, what I want to share is why this is so important even, even, even beyond those ideas, even beyond the practical, this is good for society and good for your life. And even more than this is how God created things in the beginning. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 5. Okay, we're going to end in Ephesians 5.
turning here because this passage quotes the passage we just discussed. So I'm going to read here in Ephesians 5. I'm going to read from verse 22 to 32. And it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does to church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here we see in this passage quite clearly the roles in a marriage relationship between a husband and wife and how this really is a picture not just because this is a creation ordinance but that God patterned marriage after the relationship between Christ and His church. So it's not just the fact that it's practical and traditional to have marriage with, with the men and a husband leading between one man and one woman. It's not just that it's a creation ordinance. It's because if we do not uphold God-given marriage in a husband and a wife, we are actually marring the image of Christ and His church. Because Christ and His church is one of mutual love, where there's leadership and submission, where there's self-sacrifice, where there's cherishing, where there's sanctification, where there's giving up ourselves, where there's dying for the body. And so if we, in our view of marriage, completely eradicate all of those symbols, we're actually attacking the image of Christ in His church. This profound mystery that Paul talks about here in verse 31 and 32. And so we should see a corruption of marriage, not just as hurting ourselves, not just society, not just going against God's creation ordinance, but an attack against Christ. Now, reading these verses here, we might be tempted to think, again, that the husband, well, he gets to represent Christ. That doesn't seem fair. And the wife gets to represent the church, you know, a bunch of sinners. That doesn't seem fair. I don't, I don't like the, the, those representations. Okay? But both husband and wife do reflect Christ in various ways. The husband reflects Christ in the fact that he loves his wife in such a way that the, his needs of his wife are above his own. Okay? And so, so men, when you get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror... You need to remind yourself, your life is not about you. Look at yourself. It's not about you. It's about your wife. It's about your children. It's about pleasing God by putting their needs beyond my own. When you come home and you're tired, remember, it's not about you. When you come home and the dinner table is not ready and a hot supper is not ready, remember, it's not about you. How can you serve your family? How can you give of yourself in a loving, self-sacrificing way for your wife and for your children? That's the attitude that husbands ought to have in that relationship. Now, women in that relationship and husband and wife also reflect Christ. They reflect the church in that submission to Christ. And they also reflect Christ in the fact that Christ came to serve and to be and, and to or, and not to be served, but to serve and to give himself. And Christ comes down to help us. In the Old Testament, God is called our helper, not because he's inferior, but rather he does that in loving, sacrificing Service And so, wives, when you look in the mirror in the morning, say the same thing. It's not about you. 
It's not about you. God has put you here to serve your husband and to serve your children. And he's pleased when you serve them for his honor and for his glory. Okay. And as we do this, both husband and wife give of themselves. And there is the glorious result. We have harmony and peace in a marriage. We, we see God's great design working in that marriage, like creating a home of, of peace and tranquility and comfort. And we see the image of Christ and his church reflected. Now, as we close here today, I want to talk a few sentences about the reality. The reality is that none of us have a picture-perfect marriage. If you haven't figured out yet, you're a sinner. Um, and if you're married, you, you won't take you long to realize that you're married to a sinner. Um, and so you're a sinner and you're married to a sinner. You need change and your spouse needs change. Not only that, but we have people who are married to an unbeliever. Someone who doesn't even love the Lord. How, how am I supposed to lovingly submit if they're not a believer? How am I supposed to lovingly lead if they don't love Christ? We have people who have been ravaged by terrible divorces. Who have been hurt by adultery. Who have been cheated on. We have people who have been abandoned. And so we talk about the reality of sin corrupting and marring marriage. Where are we supposed to turn? What are we supposed to do? How, what are we supposed to think? How we ought to live? Because you might be saying, well, yes, I agree with your ideal picture of what a husband and wife should look like, but I'm a sinner. She's a sinner. I can't do that. I want you to look with me in Ephesians 5. And I want to read verse 23 and 24 again. Twenty-three says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. There's a truth here that we can't overlook. This passage is not just talking about marriage. This passage is talking about Christ in the church. Because if you notice, look down with me again in verse 32. He said, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That is, I'm not just talking about marriage here. I'm talking about Christ in the church. And then he finishes with, in verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Okay, there's still implications for us as husband and wife, but don't miss the point that this whole passage is about Christ in the church. And so we experience the pain and the suffering of broken relationships whether we're within the church, whether we have an unsaved love and whether we've been, 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 been hurt by painful experiences, whether we're grappling with sin and, and I'm trying to lead this household and I can barely get myself together. We need to remember that this passage is not primarily about husband and wife, but about Christ in the church. And what does it say about Christ? He is the savior of the church. You're not your wife's savior. Your wife is not your savior. The pastor is not your savior. Your Savior is Christ. And so when we get to those points where I don't know what to do, we need to look to Christ. He is the one who's going to save us. What does what He say in His Word? How is He going to offer me strength? How is He going to offer me hope and comfort? I come to Him in confession. I come to Him pleading for change. I come to Him because He is the only one who offers me hope and true promise of change. And so I need to remember that and you need to remember, regardless of what situation you find yourself in, Christ is your Savior. And you need to go to Him. And not only that, but then we need to act. Look at verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit everything to their husbands. So how do we live? How do you live if you're married to an unbeliever? How do you live if, you've, if you're living single? How do you live if you're, if you're living in this terrible relationship? You need to submit to Christ. As the church submits to Christ. That's the, the underlying truth of this passage. And so you need to, and you can ask for help for this, but you need to find out how Christ through the scriptures is instructing you in that time in your life. If you're married to an unbeliever, 1 Peter chapter 3 tells you how wives ought to live quietly and submissive to their husbands. 
so you can win them without a word. You need to believe that scripture and submit to Christ. Okay, so how, how do we deal with the problems of life? We need to remember that Christ is our Savior and remember that Christ is our Lord and we ought to submit to Him. And so we must remember that this most important truth as we come to a discussion about marriage. Okay? Wives, you can't rely on your husband primarily. You need to turn to Christ. Husbands, you need Christ. If there's any way you're going to lead your wife, it needs to lead through your example of following the Lord Jesus Christ. What your wife needs from you is to be a godly husband. And what your husband needs from you, wife, is to be a godly wife. Okay? Let's close in a word of prayer. God, as we reflect on this text this morning, it is still hard for us to fathom that the eternal Son of God would take on human form, veil His glory in humanity, take on limitations, and then die in our place by taking sin, Him who knew no sin, taking sin upon His own shoulders such that we can experience your forgiveness, so that we could be at peace with you, so that we could have the hope of eternal life. Oh God, I pray if there's no one here that is, if there's anyone here that has not experienced that love of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would understand, as we talk about marriage and husband and wife, that they would understand the greater truth of Christ and His love for the church and how He gave His life for sinners. Just like me. Just like us here in this church, Christ gave His life for sinners so that we might be forgiven. Oh God, may our marriages be marked with such love. May our marriages be marked with such self-sacrifice. May the world, as they look in at the church see not a bunch of hypocritical people condemning sinners condemning homosexual marriage because it's unusual or new or novel or because it breaks a commandment but rather they would see a church where we have husbands acting like husbands where we see wives living like wives picturing the loving submission and lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the church in our homes. Oh God, we need your grace because we recognize we are sinners. We need your help. Point us, direct our hearts toward the Lord Jesus Christ. If we try to give of ourselves out of duty because we feel like we ought to, it's never going to last. We need to be captivated by our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be in love with Him and then want to imitate Him in how we act and how we live. So God, fill us with a love for Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.